Well, gather around, folks, cause I've got a tale for y'all that's wilder than my time wandering around the desert with a bunch of grumbling folks in a whole lot of sand. So Ken Ham, that fellow who's all fired up about young earth creationism, decides to chat about the origins of evolution on Ali Beth Stuckey's podcast. And in the midst of it all, he starts saying things like, The New Testament folks believed Adam and Eve were the real deal. All with the aim of convincing folks to read Genesis like it's a recipe for manna. But hold on to your staff, cause today, this soul shepherd Moses is here to mosey through 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, and figure out if an allegorical interpretation of Adam and Eve throws a monkey wrench in what my friend Paul had to say. Now, before we get started, let me lay it out for you. I'm not here to part the Red Sea of arguments for or against Adam and Eve being as factual as a golden calf. No, there are some mighty fine arguments for their historicity, and that's a whole different story. What I'm here to do is play detective and figure out what was cooking in Paul's mind when he penned them verses in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, you can be laughing at all my jokes and still believe Adam and Eve were chatting it up with the snakes in the garden. You can even reckon that both Jesus and Paul thought Adam was as real as that rock I struck for water back in the day. But today, let's focus on deciphering what Paul had to say when he wrote this particular passage. In other words, we're not debating today about whether it's historical. Ready? Let's wander into them Bible verses, just like I roamed that wilderness well for a little longer than 40 years. Okay, let's look at what Ken Ham actually said. If it's just a metaphor, then it can mean anything you want to make it to mean. Mm. And that's not how the New Testament writers treat Genesis 1 to 11 or 1 Corinthians 15:45. Uh, Paul says the first uh, man, his name was Adam, the, the, the first man uh, was Adam, and I was referencing a real Adam. In fact, uh, Paul references uh, the literal first Adam and the name of the last Adam. Uh, the Lord Jesus, and, and puts those two together. If the first one's a metaphor, then is the last one a metaphor too, or is it literal? Mm, yeah. So you see, Genesis 1 to 11, really to be consistent as a Christian and to have a foundation for your doctrine and a foundation for anything, you've got to take it as literal history. Yeah. Ali Beth Stuckey asks him, if you can believe Genesis 1 to 11 is not a literal account and accept all of the main tenets of Genesis 1 to 11. Ken Ham emphatically responds by saying, yes, but it's illogical. His biggest argument was Jesus thought it was historical. Paul compared Jesus and Adam, and therefore Paul must have thought Adam was historical. If Paul thinks that something was historical, he must have read it literally, and therefore we should as well. This, ladies and gentlemen, is called proof texting where someone takes a random verse from the Bible without any context at all and just quotes it without any further argumentation for why we should interpret the verse in his specific way he wants us to. Think about how you've probably joined a conversation midway through and spoke up only to realize that you thought they were talking about something else. Why? 
because you didn't have the background context. We need to add some additional notes before we get into the meat of the conversation. It's worth mentioning that Ham said Jesus thought Adam was historical, but we will have to talk about that a different time. Additionally, Stuckey's question was specifically in the context of Genesis 1-11 not being historical. Naturally, I will answer the question of how one can believe in a non-literal Adam while also holding that 1 Corinthians was inspired by God. But I will also provide alternatives so that one can hold that Adam was a literal historical figure and still think Genesis 1-11 is not a literal account. In other words, even if Paul thought Adam was historical, it didn't follow that he thought Genesis 1-11 was a historical, literal retelling. So let's look at the context, something Ham failed to do, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-42. Paul emphasizes the foundational importance of Christ's resurrection in the Christian faith. He contrasts the perishable earthly body with the imperishable heavenly body emphasizing the transformation believers will undergo in the resurrection. Paul underscores that through Christ, believers will be made alive and experience a glorious, immortal existence in the future resurrection. In verse 35 and 36, Paul uses a seed analogy to explain the conception of resurrection. Verse 36 says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, our mortal bodies must die so we can have immortal bodies. Then Paul continues the seed metaphor when he says, It is the same with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So, also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the one made of dust, so too are those made of dust. And like the one from heaven, so too those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. Next, in verses 50 to 56, he explains how the earthly body will be transformed into the heavenly body which defeats death. If you look closely, Every time Paul compares a similar concept as the earthly body with a similar concept as the heavenly body in regards to them transferring, each time he's using a different synonym in order to explain what each is in an in-depth way. He says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. When we get to Adam, he continues the line of comparisons. The first man, Adam, became a living person. And then another comparison, 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. A verse later, he says, the first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. The comparisons of Adam and Jesus might be confusing to some, but we will come back to it. And the explanation for how the earthly body is made into a heavenly body, he continues the synonyms, imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. If we put it all together, the earthly body is characterized by mortality, perishability, weakness, and dishonor, while the heavenly body we will receive at the resurrection is characterized by immortality, imperishability, power, and glory. This transformation is seen as the culmination of God's plan, where believers will bear the image of the heavenly just as they have borne the image of the earthly. It should be pretty obvious that the overall theme of the passage is, is not Paul trying to teach a history lesson on Adam, but some of Paul's message could still rely on Adam's historicity. In regards to the reference of Adam, while it's obvious who the first Adam is, it's clear from the context of the passage that the last Adam that is being referred to is Jesus. Some texts from outside the Bible reference two separate men between Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.7, which make it possible that when Paul says the first man in this passage, it refers to the man in Genesis 2.7, and then when Paul says the last man, he's referring to the man in Genesis 1 that was created on day 6. But this is unlikely due to the repeated comparison of Jesus and Adam in the previous verses of 1 Corinthians 15. While it's certainly possible that Paul's relying on Adam's historicity here, I do not think this particular verse adds to the discussion at all, as what he says here is indistinguishable from if Paul was referring to Adam as a symbolic figure. In actuality, I think this is one of the clearest mentions where Paul sees Adam symbolically. This doesn't mean he couldn't have seen Adam literally, but I think it's clear in this instance that Paul is referring to symbolic aspects of the story of Adam. Before I explain why this is a symbolic passage, we need to get one thing out of the way. The biggest argument mentioned for 1 Corinthians 15, 45-47, as Paul thinking Adam was a literal person, goes something like this. Paul compares Adam and Jesus. If Adam is metaphorical, then it obviously implies Jesus is as well. Jesus wasn't historical, and therefore Paul must have thought Adam was historical. If Paul saw him as historical, he must have been reading him literally here. Therefore, Genesis 1-11 is meant to be read literally, and therefore you shouldn't believe in old earth and evolution if you want to read Genesis 1-11 literally. It's worthy of note that an argument like this can actually make people feel uncomfortable, and it makes perfect sense why. If Jesus is a metaphor, we've probably wasted a lot of our lives. Something very important to point out is that an argument like this pokes at our fears. If the idea of thinking Genesis was a metaphorical figure makes you feel uncomfortable, 
pay attention to that as well as what your knee-jerk reaction is to that bad feeling. We need to remember that when we have that anxiety, it can cloud how we think. Think to yourself, is your first reaction to run away, to put this video down? Is it to go to the comment section and tell me why I'm wrong? Or are you openly ready looking for what to say? Now, it doesn't mean you're wrong, but we need to make sure what we think isn't guided by our emotions, but rather by the facts. So if you need to take a deep breath, maybe take a break to calm yourself down so we can remove all the distractions from understanding what the Bible says on such an important question. Okay, back to the argument. Paul compares Adam and Jesus. If Adam is metaphorical, then it obviously implies Jesus is as well. Jesus wasn't historical, and therefore Paul must have thought Adam was historical. If Paul saw him as historical, he must have been reading him literally here. Well, I hope the obvious response for that is that we have a long list of historical evidence for Jesus. The reasons for why one would think Adam is metaphorical has nothing to do with Jesus. One reason is that Genesis and the Gospels are completely different forms of literature. In other words, the historicity of Jesus is not a question. He existed. As we have mentioned before, even if Paul thought Adam was historical, it doesn't mean he's referring to Adam historically or literally here. It can be both. More importantly for this passage, it's common even today to compare metaphorical or imaginary people with real people all the time. People say stuff like, that man is as strong as Hercules. Does that mean they actually thought Hercules existed? Surely not. A few years ago, all the hip youngsters like myself would sarcastically say, good one, Sherlock, whenever someone made an obvious point that really wasn't very profound. This might sound crazy, but I don't have any idea if Sherlock Holmes has any reference to a historical person, and I refuse to Google it, even though it would take like 10 seconds. In other words, I have no idea if Sherlock Holmes was a historical person. The point is, it is a word, an idiom, a, a metaphor. In other words, we often use references to people whether we think they're historical or not. In the book, Reading Genesis 1-2, an evangelical conversation, young earth creationist Todd Beale tries to say that Bible scholar Tramper Longman went from thinking that Adam was historical to thinking that Adam wasn't historical. He says, in Tramper Longman's old book, How to Read Genesis, Longman treats Adam and Eve as historical persons. There is no hint that they should be regarded in any other fashion. And yet, Dr. Longman responds by saying, In fact, I did not change my view. I did not discuss the historical status of Adam and Eve as literal individuals as I interpreted the story in the book. I would not change a word from what I said in that book. Beale thinks I changed my view because he attributes to me a belief in the historical Adam because I do not pause and discuss the issue explicitly in the book. This is a real-life example of Dr. Longman talking about Adam and Eve just like Paul could have been talking. And then a young earth creationist 
comes along, like in him, and incorrectly assumes Dr. Longman must be talking about Adam and Eve as literal individuals just because he was referencing them without specifically saying or implying they were non-literal in some way. The irony. We cannot simply assume that Paul thought Adam was historical simply because he commented on it. If you read the book, it's not like Dr. Longman is unclear. You can analyze a story and talk about a literary character doing things in a story without actually believing said person was historical. If I said something like, Superman was a great guy because he saved so many people. This is a perfect real-life example of a way that Paul could have been talking about Adam without implying he thought Adam was historical. All of this, of course, completely ignores the possibility of Christ being used in a figurative, archetypal way whenever he's compared with Adam. Note someone like New Testament scholar James Dunn, who comments on Romans 5, saying, For in these verses, Paul encapsulates all human history under the two archetypal figures, Adam and Christ, as embodying, in effect, the only two alternatives which the gospel opens to mankind, death and life. Also note his thoughts on 1 Corinthians 15. Once again, Jesus clearly was a historical figure, but that in no way negates the possibility of him being used in a figurative way. This whole, if Adam was figurative, is Jesus figurative? Question is ironic, once we realize the answer might actually be yes. At least when he's compared with that. So what was Paul talking about? And why does this passage make us think Paul was thinking of a Adam in a historical way? To come to this conclusion, we must find out why a couple random comparisons of Adam and Jesus is in a long list of comparisons between features of earthly bodies changing to heavenly bodies. In order to answer the question, we need to discuss the topic of archetypes and typology. Now, many theologians would argue that Paul is using Adam archetypally. I would like to propose... Uh, my basic view of dealing with Adam and Eve is to understand them in archetypal ways. The idea would be that everything in Genesis 2 concerned with the human origins is archetypal in nature. When I use the term archetypal, I'm not just talking about prototypes. Prototype is the first one in line, off the assembly line and all the rest come after it. Okay, on the same pattern. That's a prototype. So I'm not talking about just prototypes. In, in literature, when they talk about archetypes, they're talking about an archetypal sort of character. The villain, the hero, the damsel in distress, the Frodo. Yeah, okay. Archetypes of various sorts. Okay, and I'm not really talking about that either, although that has similarity. By archetype, what I'm talking about is that this archetype embodies the whole group. So when, when we learn that we all sin in Adam, Paul's treating Adam as an archetype. We're all embodied in Adam. We're all doing what Adam is doing. Adam is all of us. That's the archetype idea. This idea of an archetype is a new idea to some, but is not a new idea is actually quite ancient. 
Second Baruch, Ben Sirah, and possibly other Jewish authors writing around the time of the New Testament use Adam as an archetype to represent all of humanity. Many scholars argue Paul is using Adam archetypally in Romans 5, 7, and 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, this view would see the story of Adam as a representation for the predicament we are in. What happened to Adam happens to us. It's possible Paul could use Adam archetypally while still thinking he was historical, but that is a different topic. The point is that using Adam doesn't require that we conclude he understood Paul as a historical person. In other words, it can refer to an individual man as well as everyone. Now that's fascinating. Additionally, the man in Genesis 2 is made from the dust which is often used in the Bible to refer to mortality, something all humans are. Mortal. It also shows the origin and location in comparison to heavenly creatures. We belong on earth while the spiritual creatures are heavenly. This explains why Adam and Jesus are in a long list of other comparisons between the earthly and heavenly body. Adam and Jesus are both mentioned for what they represent. Adam is a representation of our mortal, corrupt, earthly bodies, while Jesus is a representation of our soon-to-be-immortal, incorruptible, heavenly body. Dennis Lambrou notes, Here, Adam is called the first man, but in the context of the contrast with Christ has the last Adam. It cannot be seen as a claim that Adam was the first biological specimen. Since Christ was not the last biological specimen, we must instead conclude that this text is talking about the first archetype and the last archetype. We might say that Adam was an initial archetype, replaced by the ultimate archetype in Christ. It is insufficient to bring in biology simply because Christ was biologically descended from Adam. This is confirmed in the remainder of the passage as it contrasts the natural and the spiritual. The archetypal element of dust is specifically explained as making the archetypal man earthly in comparison to the heavenly nature of Christ. It describes human nature. The biblical point is to contrast and compare Adam to Jesus and our relationship to both. Paul makes no claims about genetic relationships of all people to or about material origins, only that we share the dust, nature of the archetype, end quote. Now the big verse in question is, the first man is from the earth, made of dust, the second man is from heaven. While it might be tempting to conclude that Paul is referring to the literal material creation of Adam from dust in this passage, I see it as unlikely, as it doesn't fit with the entire point of the passage, which is to contrast the material body and the heavenly body, and how the material body transforms into a heavenly body. It is doubtful that Paul is concerned about what our earthly bodies are made out of, given there is no mention of what the heavenly body is made out of. It is more than just a literal body, though. As mentioned before, the earthly body is specifically characterized by mortality. 
perishability, weakness, and dishonor, while the heavenly body we will receive at the resurrection is characterized by immortality, imperishability, power, and glory. So simply seeing Adam being made from dust as simply a literal figure doesn't make much sense. Rather, in this verse, Paul is contrasting Adam, who was created from the dust of the earth, with Christ, who is from heaven. The contrast between the dust of the earth and heaven serves to illustrate the difference between our earthly mortal bodies and the transformed spiritual bodies believers will receive in the resurrection. An additional reason to think Adam isn't used in a purely literal way here is because in the list of transformations like it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it lists so also it is written, the first man Adam became a living person, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. In this way, the literal Adam figure is not transforming into Jesus. Rather, the first man, Adam, is described as becoming a living person. In contrast, the last Adam, Jesus, is described as becoming a life-giving spirit. As you can see, both sides of the coin have a mention of life. They are compared, but there is a part where they are not similar, where the Adam is referred to as a person, while Jesus is referred to as a spirit, which emphasizes where our focus should be in this passage. By using the term living person for Adam, Paul emphasizes that humanity's initial state was one of physical existence and consciousness, but also one of mortality. In referring to Jesus, Paul is emphasizing Jesus' divine and life-giving nature, this highlights the metaphorical transformation from natural, mortal existence, Adam, to a spiritual, life-giving existence through Christ. It is possible that one might think this passage refers to the origin of Adam and Jesus. For example, they might say Adam was from the ground originally, while Jesus is from heaven. I admit this is possible, but unlikely for a number of reasons. For one, the context doesn't seem to fit. 1 Corinthians 15 is primarily focused on the resurrection of the dead and the nature of the resurrected body. The immediate context is not about the origins of Adam and Christ, but about the transformation of believers in the resurrection. Paul's emphasis in this verse is about what it means to come from the dust, what it means to be from heaven, not on the historical or biographical details of Adam and Christ. He uses them as theological symbols to convey deeper truths. Additionally, Paul's mention of Adam being the first man and Jesus being the second man adds to this idea of a non-literal reading. While many might assume that Paul must be referring to Adam as the first man, because it might appear that Adam was the first man in the Genesis narrative, this doesn't really seem to make sense with how Jesus is referred to as the last man. Are we really to think that Jesus was the last man to ever live? Certainly not. 
It does make us question what Jesus as the last man was intended to mean, though. By referring to Jesus as the last Adam, Paul could be emphasizing the completeness and finality of Jesus' work. The term last suggests that no further Adam or representative is needed after Jesus. He fulfills and completes the work of redemption that addresses the problem introduced by the first Adam. Now, one might say, well, if Jesus is the final solution to the problem that Adam introduced, he must be literal and historical, right? Not necessarily. As we have seen, Adam is represented here not as his literal self, but for what he represents, mortality, perishability, weakness, and dishonor. Jesus allows us to finally have a solution for our earthly nature. For all these reasons, scholars and theologians often interpret this verse archetypally. While it is possible to see Paul as reading Adam as purely an archetype, there are other views worth mentioning. One view is to see Adam as purely a archetype while in Genesis, while also believing he was a real historical person outside of Genesis. In this case, one can see the story of Adam and Eve as a story based on two real historical people, but the entire story not have occurred exactly as was portrayed. This is the view of someone like John Walton, who views Adam as the first priest that represent and mediate for humanity, just like the priests of Israel did for the Israelites. This idea of archetypes also helps us understand how Paul is using typology in the biblical mindset. Here is Harvard PhD student Swan Sana on the topic of typology and the historicity of Adam. Given the way that typology worked in the ancient world, uh, when you tried to say that one thing was like another thing and you were claiming or making a claim about divine providence, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could you could have uh, one example that I've heard is, well, you know, Adam doesn't necessarily have to be historical because you could still have typology. So, for example, if I say that this detective is so good, he's like Sherlock Holmes, mm -hmm. right? He's kind of this uh, anti-type of Sherlock Holmes. I could say, yeah, sure, like that's a kind of typology. You're noting a likeness between them, and mm -hmm. it brings out a certain level of meaning because you're saying that detective is a really good detective. He's like Sherlock Holmes. But in terms of like how it works in the biblical mindset, in the ancient world, when you have a typology, it is a claim about divine providence. It is a claim about what God has actually done in history. But I think it favors, in my opinion, a historical Adam uh, because of the fact that the way that typology works is that it is rooted and grounded in history. It is a claim about what God has tangibly done and how he has, through his sovereignty and providence, arranged history. My friend Swan thinks Paul thought of Adam as a historical person because he was speaking of him typologically. This brings us to an interesting This brings us to an interesting conundrum if we are reading Adam archetypally. How can Paul be using Adam archetypally if what is being referred to had to have occurred in historical reality in Paul's eyes? The answer is in what Adam represents. Adam represents the historical reality that we are all creatures stuck in a state of mortality. Therefore, God is therefore Paul's point is that God is providentially within therefore that therefore God 
Therefore, Paul's point is that God is providentially within history providing us with the solution to the problem by giving us life and redemption through Christ. With that being said, with that being said, hypothetically, I must admit it's theoretically possible that Paul wasn't using Adam and Christ archetypally. Now, hypothetically, let's just say that for some reason you're not following with my reasoning. For some reason, you think that Paul is making some type of historical claim about Adam or a completely literal claim about Jesus. This might sound crazy, but even then, I don't think that's enough to conclude that Adam is historical or that Genesis is completely literal. Just because Paul thought something does not mean that we should think that. That might seem like an odd point to some. They might say, surely it matters. Paul was like the greatest Christian ever. He also knew tons of people that knew Jesus and was inspired by God to write a huge part of the Bible. He was even trained in the Old Testament texts. Of course, he, we should trust him. Well, let's think about it. There's four ways that Paul could have come to the conclusion that Adam was historical or that Genesis 1-11 to is supposed to be literal. He, he was either told by his culture, he came to the conclusion on his own, told by God directly, or told by God through the culture. If he was told by God through the culture or came to it on his own without God orchestrating it, why should we care? It's not as if his culture had any special access to know if Adam was historical. You might think, well, if all the culture of Moses' time thought Adam was historical, shouldn't we take that seriously? I would say no. We can say with confidence that they were simply not in a position to be able to verify the historicity of Genesis with any accuracy. We know from their writings, along with other texts during the time that nearly nobody, if anybody at all, was making an attempt to get into the brain of the writer of Genesis 1-11, to and therefore they could not have been fully able to understand and grasp what the writer of Genesis was saying. That type of way of studying the Bible wasn't developed until much later. Even if Paul did, it's highly doubtful that he had good access to ancient texts in order to know how to answer the question of its historicity. Finally, if he was told by God that it was historical, well, that would be great. But how would we know if he got that direct knowledge from God? It's not as if God directly told Paul what to say in his letters. In fact, in 1 Corinthians alone... Paul explicitly says many times in his writings that what he is saying in those verses is not coming from God. This shows two things. One, it's possible that 1 Corinthians 15, 4-7 isn't a message from God. Two, this proves that God allowed Paul to use his own first century thinking to come to conclusions about what to say in his letters. You can check out my series on the inspiration of the Bible if you want to know more about that.
Of course, it's possible that God could have allowed Paul to think on his own, but prevented him from making any errors. But surely you think it's theoretically possible that God could have allowed some errors, right? Theoretically possible, right? And of course, if Paul is making historical claims about Genesis, because he doesn't know the original context, and if Genesis isn't supposed to be completely literal, that would make his claims wrong, right? Well, what reason would we have to think his goal is to read the Old Testament the same way we do? And why does reading the Old Testament in a way other than what we do make it wrong? Okay, you might be thinking that if we aren't supposed to read it as a historical account, and Paul reads it as a historical account, then you might call that wrong. To which I would say yes. If it's not supposed to be a historical, literal account, that is not how it was intended to read. But, but what's to say that would mean it's wrong? What does wrong mean? Paul never claimed to be reading the text as it originally was written. With that being said, why should that matter? The entire purpose of the passage has nothing to do at all with the historicity of Adam. Paul is not teaching a history lesson. He's explaining how our bodies change from earthly to heavenly. You might say that, well, the Bible can't have any errors at all of any kind. Here's a weird question for you. Are you certain of that? Are you telling me that there's no possible way that God could have inspired a group of authors in order to get his message out without allowing them to make errors on their own thinking? Here's a different question. Why would God care about if Paul is somehow making a historical claim even if it's wrong? Does that somehow make the message of the passage unclear? Rather, I don't think God cares about meaningless things like that. Another thing one might say is that this is God's word. God can't lie, and therefore, there's no way Paul is wrong. But remember that Paul clearly didn't get some of his message from God, so at least that portion of the Bible is not literally God's word. To be God's word does not require that it literally be God's words that he breathed out. Once again, check out my biblical series on inspiration. All that to say, maybe we should change our view of inspiration. Maybe inspiration is a little different than how we think of it today. Maybe we should say that scripture is inspired in what it intends to teach, not what literally every single author was thinking as they were writing. I don't think Paul is making a historical claim, but even if he was, I don't see how that means we should necessarily conclude that Genesis 1-11 is a completely literal account. If God supposedly told him that Adam was historical, that's a good reason to think Adam was historical. But this begs the question, why would God do such a thing? What benefit would it be if none of Paul's points in this passage depend on a literal Genesis 1-11? Why would God do that? The entire point of bringing up Adam is to say that our earthly bodies are mortal, perishable, weak, and dishonorable. We don't need Genesis 1-11 to to know that. As we will see in other videos, this goes the same for other New Testament writers. None of the times any of the writers of the New Testament mention Genesis 1 
requires for either Adam to be historical or for Genesis 1 to 11 to be meant as a completely literal account. Okay, Zach, I'm getting a little tired here, so let me just uh, wrap things up here. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Okay. Thanks, Moses. Okay. Okay, I've already given a long list of reasons why Ken Ham's reasoning fails here, but let's just keep going because there's there's still even more to say on that. Even if we, for some reason, concluded that Paul's way of writing implied that he thought that Adam was historical and literal in Genesis, that doesn't even necessitate that he actually thought it was historical and literal. God could have told Paul that Adam wasn't historical and was a non-literal figure in Genesis 1-11, but Paul could have wrote as if Adam was, in fact, a literal figure in Genesis because Paul could have wanted to make a point about salvation through Christ. And he could have thought the best way to do that was to reference Adam. Of course, he wasn't going to say, this theology is true, but by the way, Adam wasn't historical. Would have made other people not want to listen to his message. Two, it wouldn't have benefited his message in any way. This might seem like lying to us, but we actually do this all the time. Parents often tell their children about Santa Claus, a fictional character, to encourage good behavior and the spirit of giving during the holiday season. They may say things like, Santa is watching, so be good. This isn't the only time. Some other examples are the Tooth Fairy and the Boogeyman. More importantly, it was done in their culture back then in Paul's time. So to shun Paul as if he was supposed to live by our cultural customs would be a bit off, in my opinion. The point is that even if the text completely relied on a historical interpretation, it in no way discounts other views. To close, I want to mention one more thing. The entire reason that Ken Ham mentions Paul thinking Adam was historical or that Genesis 1-11 is literal was because he was arguing that one shouldn't believe in a non-literal Adam. He gives zero credence to the idea. As we've shown in this video, not only is it possible, but it's also likely that Paul was not reading Adam literally. So while it doesn't disprove his other points, it at least disproves this one. And therefore, this should not be a reason why we must read Genesis 1 to 11 literally. Anyways, I hope you can see that this is actually a very important passage, even if Paul had no idea why it would be when he was writing it. Anyways, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. It's been a pleasure for me to talk about this topic. Let me know what you guys think in the comments. I know this is a, a difficult topic and there's a lot of emotions going on, but let's really try to figure out what the Bible says. And if I'm wrong, please let me know about it. Anyways, this has been fun. I hope you guys have a great rest of your night. Subscribe if you want more on this topic.